five. I wonder if we were having that same problem as last time. But anyways, we got an audience here, so let's get started. Might as well get going. So uh, good morning, good morning, and welcome to The Critical Social Worker. My name is Christian A. Stetler. I am a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I am broadcasting live, as you can see behind me, from Auk Bay in Juneau, Alaska. And, you know, I got to say, even though I'm all the way down here in the uh, panhandle in southeast Alaska, more than a thousand miles south from where I used to stay up in uh, Uteagavik and Barrow, Alaska, on the Arctic Ocean. But I have to say that even way down here, the change in daylight is crazy. And you can probably even see that just in the past few weeks with the podcast. Um, but we're, we went from waking up in the darkness, my wife getting home in the darkness, to, you know, being waking, woken up by the rays of the sunshine. And I have to say... It's hard to complain about that. Um, so I got Leah is up north in Fairbanks, and I know you must be getting some sun too. But maybe not much war as much warmth as us yet. Uh, I looked at the forecast, and it looked like it was super, super cold. But um, I wanted to just quickly put Alaska into perspective for anybody that's not familiar with Alaska in here. Um, so despite all three of us here being in the same state, Lee is 700 miles north of me. And Diane is nearly a thousand miles away from me. So that's roughly the, di the distance from Florida to New York. So if you were over there, you'd have to cross, I'd have to cross six states just to get over to Diane. Um, so in other words, Alaska is really, really big. So how is it up there in the North, Lee? No, it's cold. Hey, good morning, Christian. It's going, um, yes, more daylight, but also I woke up and it's like 30 below this morning, which isn't the norm for March. So lots of coffee today. Um, and also, real quick, I just wanted to say happy National Social Work Month uh, to both of you and our listeners um, and the work that you guys do and continue to do. Um, and hello, Diane. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you. Are you you're up in Fairbanks, right? I am. Lee? Yeah. So I'm in Bethel, Alaska. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's 500 miles west of Anchorage. So it's a fly-in place. You don't, there's no road. I like to say there's no roads in or out of Bethel. <laughs> so when you're here, you're here. Well, there's snow machine, travel, travel on the river by boat. And we have small planes. And then we have uh, twice a day, we have a jet that goes in and out from Anchorage. But we are, I, I am really excited by the fact that it's daylight right now at 10 o'clock, yeah. there's light out. And then yesterday I was out walking and it was about 6.30 and I was, oh my gosh, it's daylight and it's 6.30 at night. Yay. So we come to savor these, don't we? Yes, <laughs> the we do. uh, developing light. It's yeah, awesome. It's, it's also nice to cherish these times too when it's kind of like a, I don't know what you say, a normal day for a little while. Pretty soon we'll be, it'll be the opposite and we'll be daylight, daylight, daylight. Um, yeah. So we got a really great show planned for you this morning, or I guess it could be the afternoon for you if you're down in the States. Either way, it should be a great show, so make sure you stay tuned in. We're going to be speaking with Diane. Uh, she's a scholar, social worker, and a revolutionary pedagogue, and I'll tell you why I call her that later. But before we do that, there's just a few things that we want to cover. Yes, real quick. So this project, the Critical Social Worker, uh, is supported by the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, we do want to be clear that opinions and thoughts and ideas expressed by hosts, guests, or listeners calling in uh, do not necessarily reflect the values of the social work department, the College of Liberal Arts, uh, UAF, um, or any of its affiliates. So 
Opinions expressed and ideas shared uh, belong to the speaker alone. Yes, and that's very important. And uh, with that being said, Lee, you mind sharing our mission statement too? Yeah, of course. So the Critical Social Worker Podcast is dedicated to promoting critical dialogue within the social work profession while valuing the multidimensional person. We recognize that every person has a unique story and a set of experiences, and we strive to use our platform to unfold these stories and share diverse perspectives. Our aim is to produce a safe and inclusive space for individuals from all backgrounds and to share their stories and ideas, fostering empathy and understanding among our audience. Through storytelling, we hope to promote the value of social work and encourage a sense of community. By engaging in these dialogues and sharing stories, we believe we can produce critical consciousness and a heightened awareness of ourselves, the world, and the power structures that shape it. In essence, our lofty goals include changing ourselves and the world one story at a time. Thanks, Lee. And one of the underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. We here at The Critical Social Worker believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences. We want to help unfold some of those layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that help build critical consciousness. Yes, and speaking of learning and growing, real quick before we get too ahead of ourselves, a quick shout out to the UAF Social Work Department. Uh, the program offers a highly ranked bachelor's level program uh, offered fully online, so you could do it from anywhere in the world. Um, and the cost of tuition is super affordable, so that's always a plus. Uh, but for me personally, what makes this program so special and stand out uh, are the professors. Uh, they create a sense of community within the program, lots of understanding and support, and a wide variety of uh, just knowledge. So thank you to Christian and the rest of the UAF Social Department, Social Work Department for uh just making the program uh, what it is. And so for more information on the BSW program, you can check out uaf.edu forward slash S-O-C-W-O-R-K um, or just reach out to Christian and I. What about you? Do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the show as a guest? Well, if you are, uh, hit me up and let's talk about it. Uh, send me an email. You can reach me at castetler at alaska.edu. That is C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. And I'll throw that in the chat in a minute. Um, but now before we get to our main event with Diane, uh, there's something I want to talk about um, with, uh, excuse me, there's something I want to talk about real quick. And Lee, do you mind sharing? Um, I think it's principle number eight. Yeah, I can do that. Principle number eight is uh, emphasize indigenous ideas and paradigms. The podcast places a significant emphasis on including indigenous ideas and paradigms in our discussions by highlighting indigenous experiences, stories, and perspectives that the podcast aspires to promote understanding and respect for indigenous cultures and ideas. Very important. Right on. Thanks, Lee. And I think that our dialogue and Diane in just a moment will bring uh, more clarity to as non-indigenous people, our relationships um, with indigenous people, with I indigenous ideas, different things like that. Um, and so we're definitely going to talk about that, so stick around. But for now, I want to get closer to the point. And one of the things that I've learned um, from, uh, you know, being involved with indigenous folks over the years is an enhanced understanding of gratitude and reciprocity. And um, I was introduced to the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving Address in Robin Wall Kemmerer's book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And I was so, so compelled by the chapter uh, that I wanted to use, I wanted to know if I could talk about it on my radio station, or on my radio show a few years ago. And so I wrote the Haudenosaunee 
Confederacy. And I asked him if I could use the Thanksgiving address on my radio show back then. And this is the letter that I received back. It said, uh, greetings, Ace. And by the way, if you don't know, that's my middle name. And sometimes I use it on the, uh, on the radio and whatnot. So he said, dear Ace, it is not necessary to ask me or us for permission in using the Thanksgiving address. As ownership does not apply to, me, to either me, us, or even the Haudenosaunee. Who can own prayer and gratitude? Prayer and gratitude must emanate from the deepest place in our heart and soul. Always anew, yes, and never the same twice. What is being shared is how it plays out in Haudenosaunee culture, how it guides our personal and cultural lives. What is on the website, as you can imagine, is just the tip of the iceberg. Many school teachers over the years have added these principles to their curriculum for discussion and contemplation about another way to live and to be in a relationship on this planet. In the bigger perspective, what better give back is there than to, to the Haudenosaunee that our lives are improved and growing? It begs the question, how can prayer and gratitude play out in each of our lives relevant to each and every one of us? Thank you, Ace, for being inspired to create a radio show and to pass the message on. Thanks for your, that's your give back to us all. Best wishes, Bob. And I just wanted to share that just to emphasize that I believe it's always important to ask, um, to ask if we want to use something and to show as much respect as we can um, when dealing with such matters. And anyway, I was thinking about um, adding the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address, um, inspired by Diane, a video I watched with her where she opened with gratitude. It got me thinking. And the first concern that rose up into my head was like, I, mean, I, can't, I can't read that whole thing. Um, this is a podcast in 2023. People do not have <laughs> the attention span for that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, They'll tune me out. They'll tune it out if I, if I read it or if we go over it. But then I got to thinking about the, uh, one of the passages I liked in the book from Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, the chapter is called Allegiance to Gratitude, and it reads like this. It says, quote, The address is by the very nature of greetings to all who sustain us long, but it can be done in abbreviated form or in long and loving detail. At the school, it's tailored to the language skills of the children that speak it. Part of its power surely rest in the length of time it takes to send greetings and thanks to so many. The listeners reciprocate the gifts of the speaker's words with their attention, and by putting their minds into the place where gathered minds meet. You could be passive and just let the words and the time flow by, but each call asks for the response. Now our minds are one. You have to concentrate. You have to give yourself to the listening. It takes effort, especially in the time when we are accustomed to sound bites and immediate gratification. When the long version is done at joint meetings with non-native business, or government officials, they often get fidgety, especially the lawyers. They want to get on with it. Their eyes are darting around the room, trying so hard not to look at their watches. Sometimes even my own students, excuse me, my own students profess to cherish the opportunity to share this experience of the Thanksgiving address, and yet it never fails that one or a few comment that it goes on for too long. <laughs> for you, I sympathize. What a pity we have so much to be thankful for, end quote. <laughs> And so I considered this podcast and I asked myself, is this podcast for the lawyers and businessmen staring at their watches, trying to get out of here? Uh, it's not. The Critical Social Worker podcast is for you and for me and for us. And so I'm going to take the time, or we're going to take the time, I should say, right now to slow down in this busy world for just a minute or two and give thanks to the natural world together. Um, the Thanksgiving Address is the central prayer and invocation for the Haudenosaunee, also sometimes known as the Iroquois Confederacy or the Six Nations, and it reflects our relationship of giving thanks for life and for the life and the world around them. 
The Haudenosaunee open and close every social and religious meeting with the Thanksgiving address. It is also said as a daily sunrise prayer, and it's an ancient message of peace and appreciation of Mother Earth and her inhabitants. The children learn that according to Native American tradition, people everywhere are embraced as family. Our diversity, like all wonders of nature, is truly a gift for which we are thankful. When one recites the Thanksgiving address, the natural world is thanked, is thanked. And in thanking each life-sustaining force, one becomes spiritually tied to each of the forces of the natural and spiritual world. The Thanksgiving address teaches mutual respect, conservation, love, generosity, and the responsibility to understand that what is done to one part of the web of life, we do to ourselves. And it goes like this. Today we have gathered and we see that the cycles of life continue. We've been given the duty and the responsibility to live in balance and harmony with each other and all living things. So now we bring our minds together as one and we give greetings and our thanks to one another as people. Now our minds are one. We are thankful to our mother, the earth, for she gives us all that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk upon her. It gives us joy that she continues to care for us as she has since the beginning of time. To our mother, we send our greetings and our thanks. Now our minds are one. We give thanks to all the waters of the world for quenching our thirst and providing us with strength. Water is life and we know its power in many forms. Waterfalls, rain, mists and streams, rivers and oceans. With one mind, we send our greetings and thanks to the spirit of water. Now our minds are one. We turn our minds to all the fish in the water. They are instructed to cleanse and purify the water. They also give themselves to us as food. We are grateful that we can still find pure water. So we turn now to the fish and send our greetings and our thanks. Now our minds are one. Now we turn toward the plants. As far as the eye can see, the plants grow, working many wonders. They sustain many life forms. With our minds gathered together, we give our thanks and look forward to seeing plant life continue for many generations to come. Now our minds are one. With one mind, we turn to honor and thank all the food plants we harvest from the garden. Since the beginning of time, the grains, vegetables, beans, and berries have helped the people survive. Many other living things draw strength from them, too. We gather all the plant foods together as one and send them our greetings and our thanks. Now our minds are one. Now we turn to all the medicine plants of the world. In the beginning, they were instructed to take away sickness. They are always waiting and ready to heal us. We are happy they are still among us, those special few who remember how to use these plants for healing. With one mind, we send our greetings and our thanks to the medicines and to the keepers of the medicines. Now our minds are one. We gather our minds together to send greetings and our thanks to all the animal life in the world. They have many things to teach us as people. We are honored by them when we give when they give up their lives so that we may use their bodies as food for our people. We see them near our homes and in the deep forests. We are glad that they are here and we pray that it will always be so. Now our minds are one. We turn our thoughts to the trees. The earth has many families of trees who have their own instructions and uses. Some provide us with shelter and shade, others with fruit, beauty and other useful things. Many people of the world use a tree as a symbol of peace and strength. With one mind, we send our greetings and our thanks to the tree of life. Now our minds are one. We put our minds together and we thank all the birds who moved and fly about over our heads. The creator gave them beautiful songs. Each day they remind us to enjoy and appreciate life. The eagle was chosen to be their leader. To all the birds, from the smallest to the largest, we send our joyful greetings and our thanks. Now our minds are one. We are thankful to the powers we know as the four winds. We hear their voices in the moving air as they refresh and purify the air we breathe. They bring us 
They help us bring the change of seasons. From the four directions they come, bringing us messages and giving us strength. With one mind, we send our greetings and our thanks to the four winds. Now our minds are one. Now we turn to the west, where our grandfathers, the thunderers, live. With lightning and thundering voices, they bring with them the water that renews life. We are thankful that they keep those evil things underground. We bring our minds together as one to send our greetings and thanks to our grandfathers, the thunderers. Now our minds are one. We now send our greetings and our thanks to our eldest brother, the sun. Each day without fail, he travels the sky from east to west, bringing the light of a new day. He's the source of all the fires of life. With one mind, we send our greetings and thanks to our brother, the sun. Now our minds are one. We give our thanks to the stars who are spread across the sky like jewels. We see them in the night, helping the moon to light the darkness and bringing dew to the gardens and growing things. When we travel at night, they guide us home. With our minds gathered together as one, we send our greetings and thanks for the stars. Now our minds are one. Now we turn our thoughts to the Creator and send our greetings and our thanks for all the gifts of creation. Everything we need to live a good life is here on Mother Earth. For all the love that is around us, we gather our minds as one and we send our closest choice of words of greetings and thanks to the Creator. Now our minds are one. We've now arrived at the place where we end our words. Of all the things we have named, it is not our intention to leave anything out. If someone or something has been forgotten, we leave it to each individual to send their greetings and their thanks in their own way. Now our minds are one. So now that we've opened our minds and hearts toward gratitude and reciprocity, I would like you, if you're tuning in, to share anything that you are grateful or thankful for in the chat box. What are you thankful for? Let us know. What are you thankful for this morning, Lee? What am I thankful for? You know, I'm thankful for many, many things, but um, the things that come to mind right now is thankful for this opportunity to do this podcast and meet uh, wonderful people like Diane. I'm thankful for my education at UAF and what's to come. I'm thankful for fuzzy socks and vanilla creamer on cold days like today. Um, of course, my family and my friends, all the support they provide me and my beautiful son, Braylon. Um, and I'm thankful for the fan that's next to my bed that allows me to sleep every night. What about you, Christian? What are you thankful for? I am thankful for a lot. I'm thankful for the house that I live in. I'm thankful for the powerful ocean behind me, the wise forest that surrounds me. I'm thankful for the whales, the humpbacks, and the orcas. I'm thankful for the sea lions that swim by every day and the playful river, river otters that stop by once in a while. I'm thankful for the bald eagles and for the playful ravens who talk to us and for my strange cat, Bunny. I'm thankful for Mr. Sun shining behind me. He's supposed to be here for a whole week. I'm thankful for uh, my job at the university and the invaluable connections that I've been able to create there. I'm thankful for my wife and partner, Alicia, my three beautiful children, Zade, Nye, and Aaliyah. I'm thankful for Lee, and I'm thankful for those of you that are tuning in, watching, and listening. And I'm thankful to Diane for taking the time out of her busy life. Bless us with her knowledge, wisdom, and experience. So with that, let's get the show started. Officially.
All right, all right. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to episode three of The Critical Social Worker. I'm your host, Christian. I'm here with my co-host, Lee, and we have the pleasure of having Dr. Diane McCacken join us this morning. How are you, Diane? I'm very good. Thank you. Look at this, look at this bright sun coming in. and <laughs> yeah. like, Oh, my gosh. It's daylight. <laughs> yeah. It's very exciting. Hello again, Diane. Good morning from the interior. Good morning. All right, Diane. Like I said, it's a pleasure to have you. And so introducing you know Diane has many accomplishments that I should probably go over. She's the head of the Incredible Rural Human Services Program, along with the Humes cohort. She's won teaching awards. She's been Social Worker of the Year. She's a really big deal here in Alaska. And Alaskans (laughs) should be thankful and lucky to have her. But as you know, I always say, if you're looking for a formal introduction, this ain't the right podcast. And well, for Diane, I thought it might be cool to reach out to some of her former students to see if they might, one, help me introduce her, and two, provide us with some evidence that she didn't bribe her way to all those awards. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I, I, spoke to, I spoke to Roberta Waska from Imana on the phone, and she said oh, she met, Roberta. She said you, she met you, Diane, when she was homeless. She said you helped her get into the RHS program. And now she's on her way to receiving her associate's degree in human services in a couple months. Uh, Roberta said, Diane, that you not only helped her with her academics, her schooling, her education, but you also helped her in life. She said you helped her to understand and see situations from a different point of view, from different perspectives. She said you helped her learn skills to stay sober, helped her uh, and helped her with the grieving process. She said, quote, If you really want to know who Diane is, that's who Diane is. Somebody who helped me get out from rock bottom to where I am today, end quote. Happy, healthy, and entering the BSW program. And Grace Honoruk wrote to us saying, as I write this, I am overwhelmed with gratitude for Dr. Diane McAkron and her commitment to educating rural Alaska students to prepare them for counseling in the communities they serve while working on their own wellness. A good counselor learns how to take care of themselves first, and Diane helps us do both. Thank you also, Diane, for drawing our elders' knowledge and incorporating their teachings with each of the courses you lay out for us. Personally, you have nurtured me, helped me grow, and challenged me in ways I never I never would without your encouragement. I enjoyed each of your lectures and wonderful sense of humor to keep our class interesting over the past four mm-hmm. years. Diana Cognic, Diane. Oh, wow. Um, and we're not done yet. Margaret... <laughs> says that you supported her all the way through the program, challenging her to succeed and push through the finish. Um, Ida says, I wanted to thank Diane for her work in the YK Delta. I know she has helped a lot of indigenous people and others achieve their dreams and goals. We appreciate your assistance, support, motivation, and encouragement every time we see you. And as many times I've taken your class, got emails, I still can't say your last name correctly. Keep up doing the (laughs) awesome. You do. Um, and there's one more from Yuka. She says she was a human student in festival and enjoyed all of your classes. You introduced her to the concept of decolonization, which opened her eyes as a non-native woman of color living in rural Alaska. She also says that your stories of working in the Philippines were most memorable um, and really got her interested in the social work field. Nice. There's actually, oh my gosh! Exactly one more, Diane, and this comes uh, from my big brother, Mr. U. L. Johnson, who I can see here. U. L. Oh my and goodness! I'm very happy that he showed up. So, hello, U. L. So he had this to say. He said, "Diane, the academic and the advocate, 
She is a uniquely qualified teacher and lover of her students and dedicated to their education and being. I met Diane during my years of uh, Rural Human Services and the Human Services cohort in Bethel, and she was a gracious and attentive teacher. She's the person in whom you can trust and believes in you and what you can accomplish. She spent a lot of time with me on my classes, but also spoke to me as a person living in two cultures, which we both are. She recognized I had challenges that required special attention and she obliged. She took the time to advocate for her students as worthy to be in the, in the social work field, although the struggles all of us had were real and, she, and yet she knew that we could still learn. Diane poured her wisdom, knowledge, and love into our spirit so we would be able to help the people we would ultimately serve. I'm a 60 plus year old African-American male that has ch chosen a small village in the North Slope of Alaska to be my home. And Diane has helped me gain the skills necessary for me to help my community. I will forever be indebted to, Ms. Excuse me, to Dr. Diane McCachran for the knowledge she gave to me, the patience she took while engaging me, and the tender spirit in which she did it. I will treasure knowing her. Oh Julius L. Johnson. Oh my gosh, you guys. That is, wow, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I always feel like we're just all in this together and uh, it works because of we're all in it together. But um, gosh, I hope my talk today <laughs> lives up to some of that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's beautiful. I, it Thank was you. clear to me, Diane, that I, I could have probably gotten a hundred more anecdotes easily if I had the time to do it. And that says a lot about you. Um, and so I just want to thank you, Diane, uh, for being you and for being that ripple in the pond here in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And yeah. with that, I just want to thank invite you. you to tell us tell us your story. Tell us a story. Yeah, so I have a few stories to tell. Um, and I gave a talk to the university some weeks ago, and so I'm going to draw on that a little bit. Um, and I, I want to first say where I am, uh, my context, I live and work on the same lands as the Yupik and Chupik people where they've lived for thousands of years. And I'm very grateful that I live here and I live with them. And um, yeah, it's really nice. Um, and today I want to share some things, what um, these lands, the people have taught me. And I wonder if like when I'm telling my stories, if some of you find a way of relating to it in your own context, your own way, and, and it'd be nice to hear about that later in the show. Um, so I appreciate Yuka bringing up the Philippines. So thank you, Yuka, because I'm going to start with the Philippines, coincidentally. Um, I, I'm going to start with a story that kind of stuck with me over the years and the meaning of which I didn't quite grasp. Uh, until later, but um, I did live in the Philippines for four years. I lived in the northern Luzon region of the Philippines, and in the mountains there, um, there are various tribes. I lived with the Ibaloy people, um, and that's a tribe that's, you have to hike hours to get there. It's up in the mountains with rice terraces, um, and the Ibaloy people, I, I was there as a Peace Corps volunteer, so um so the Ibaloid people, they believe that um, all of our world is animated by spirits. And the name for those spirits are Anitos. And there can be a variety of Anitos. Some are kind of mischief. Some are good. Um, so that's something to be careful about when you're out in the uh, natural world there in the, um, where, 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 I, where I lived with the tribe. And one um, now one day... 
uh, well, let me back up a little bit. So when you go out hiking um, and you hike in a group with the Iboloi people, um, they do this beautiful thing. They put all of the people who are not fast hikers or maybe weak or older, those hikers go first and the strongest hikers go last. And I thought that was really beautiful. And so I'm a visitor there. I'm not used to hiking in their area. So I always was one of the first hikers. I'd always be in the front. And so one day, though, we had hiked out to another area and we were hiking back to our um, village, I'll say village, barangay, um, into the village. And I'm hiking up in the front and um, it's starting to get a little bit dark and we would they use uh, tightly wrapped grasses as torches, you know, to light our way in the trail. So I was in the front and we, they started lighting up the um, torches. And one of the, one, one of the people come up to me and they, they say, Oh, come go and hike in the back of the line. And I thought, this is very exciting for me. I think, oh my God, I'm a strong hiker and they're putting me in the back and I'm like kind of feeling pride. And I walk my way to the back of the line on the trail and we start going and I tap the person in front of me and I said, why, you know, why did they shift me back here? And he said, oh, because um, when it gets dark, the Anitos like to come out and they sometimes they snatch the last person in line. I was like, I didn't feel so good all of a sudden. And I thought, well, wait, whoa, whoa, what about me? And, you know, what's going to happen? Won't they snatch me? And he just laughed and he said, well, no, because you don't believe in them. And I here he had like seemingly contradictory ideas in his mind. And I I thought, uh, OK, well, I don't know. I mean, I got some chills on that hike because I thought, well, what? God, what if they are there and what if they do snatch me? But um, I made it safely and I'm here today. So um, so years later, I kind of reflected on that story and I realized that sort of the Ibaloi people had kind of leveraged my outsiderness as a protection. So um, and they did it in such a beautiful way, I thought. And that got me thinking when I started teaching and all of my students are from various tribes. And one thing I wanted to, you know, really have in my mind is how can I mediate uh, my Westernness so that my Westernness, um, it doesn't become a weapon in the classroom, whether accidentally or deliberately. Um, and I, and that's something I've probably continued to think about for 20 years of my life out here in teaching. I've been out here 25 years. I was an itinerant school social worker to begin with. So I traveled and I lived in a village out here and traveled to various villages, then moved over to the university. We have a campus here. And I realized when I walk into the classroom, I represent a white teacher who... As one student told me one time in the beginning of her time in RHS, she said, well, Diane, um, I'm just waiting for you to make me feel stupid because that's what white teachers do. And now she wasn't necessarily talking about college. She was talking about K through 12. 
and into college. And so um, I thought that was, you know, that stings a little bit, to be honest. And then at the same time, wow, I'm grateful. If we talk about gratitude, so grateful she could say that. I'm grateful that I could take it in and use it as a tool for reflection. That's really it, is just trying to understand the history of education, what I represent, whether I want to or not, and then how do I transition in a way where the classroom I'm in, it's a, it can be a collaborative community classroom where all feel comfortable and respected. So I want to just, I want to take a moment real quick and just frame out the Rural Human Service Program, which I'll refer to as RHS, uh, just so you have a sense of the kind of environment and it'll make my stories make a little more sense too. So the Rural Human Service Program, it's, um, and it actually got started in uh, about 1990. And that was when a AFN, Alaska Federation um, na nation, natives, native, a I don't even know what AFN means now, <laughs> Alaska Federation for Natives. Um, they had their conference and they were noticing that the university did not have a lot of indigenous students, especially in the field of behavioral health, human services, social work. And they sort of tasked the university with, hey, you're going to have to develop something so that people have access. And so a group of elders, so, uh, a couple of university faculty got together and created the Rural Human Service Program. Um, it's evolved over time quite a bit, and it's still going strong out of the interior Alaska campus and then the campus I'm at. So the design of it is it's a two-year um, two program. It's a university certificate, 34 credits. And students are, flown, there's a grant, the state has a prevention grant. And so students are flown in two weeks a month. I mean, one week a month for two academic years. And during that week, they are working on any number of classes. Um, I mean, uh, topics. So we have um, counseling classes, addiction um, substance abuse treatment classes, community change. They do a practicum. Um, grief and healing. So every month is a two credit university course that they take. It's also a closed cohort. So that means once we start the cohort, that group of people, usually about 15 to 20, will, will travel together through the two years. And so um, now that, the, and so the environment that we try to, you know, that I try to create and my colleagues is one where it's a holistic environment um, and we're covering the hardest topics that societies face, uh, okay? And, um, and, and you all would know those topics. Um, and so this environment, especially when you have primarily or all indigenous people, um, it, it has worked really well to have, always have, we always have two elders with us through the week. So they're part of the instructional team. And I'll say more about them in a little bit. And um, let's see. And it's um, a very holistic, experiential, place-based, a lot of times in the learning. It's very interactive. Uh, 
and the program I'm in and we sit, our desks are in the cultural center and there we have tables that are in a big horseshoe so we're, we can all see each other. Um, we start the day in a, partic- in a particular way. We have a blessing and then we have a check-in and we also end the day with a blessing and we check out. So we kind of have some structure through the week that makes sense for you know my students. So um, that probably sounds pretty good, right? Um, and on paper, sounds it is really good. But I want to share with you a couple of stories of how I what I had to learn about this model and about teaching in this way. And I'll start with a little story about the elders, the beloved elders. Um, you know, I I was. My uh, in my upbringing, I didn't um, grow up with elders, and I, uh, my mother and my father, and even my stepfather were only children, so I didn't have aunts, uncles, or cousins. And I came to a land of aunts, uncles, and cousins, and elders, and grandparents, and great grandparents, and so I had some uh, I had some adjustment to do, right? So. Uh, and one of those regarding elders in the classroom. So uh, when I first started teaching in the cohort and there would be two elders and they usually sit at the table next to me. Now, I'm going to be honest here. I was not comfortable. And I did not. I did not. I, it's hard to even say the sentence because I'm so different now than I was 20 years ago. But I didn't even want them in the classroom. OK, and now this is and I want to say also, look, I'm, I'm in pain even saying that, but I want to I I tell this story to elders all the time out here. So we all laugh about it now. But um, so the elders would be there and I was concerned. Uh, would they follow my syllabus? Uh, what if they told stories that I didn't know how to relate back to my course, you know, my course content? Um, what if they asked me a question and I don't know how to respond in front of everyone? I don't know. It was just, it was very awkward for me. And I also, when I went to college, uh, we did not have designated elders in, in any classroom I'd been in. So here I am, um, looking around the room, because then I'm also, I'm projecting that onto my students. I go, well, maybe they don't, maybe they're uncomfortable, or maybe this is too weird for them too, because they think college should be another way. And, uh, but as I looked around the room, okay, I realize everyone's comfortable except me. So, okay, obviously Diane's the one with the problem. I also noticed this kind of an energy with the students and the elders, um, a comfort level that I, had not ex- was not experiencing at the time in the beginning, um, so that that really that's something that I had to really reflect on. So every month, um, oh, you know, and some oh, and sometimes I was impatient. I, I felt my own impatient, and so it was important for me at that time um, as I went through these different reactions I was having um, that I needed to engage a reflective process that would promote my taking responsibility for this, these responses I was having. And it was also, you know, it came out of really, you know, my impulse to control the classroom was, was colonial in the guise of, or or one could say the protection of institutional curriculum integrity. Um, And so 
but really it was just me trying to control the place um, because I didn't know really how to interact at that time with elders in a good way. Um, and there's this quote from this teacher, uh, professor, scholar that I really like, Parker Palmer. And he writes, if we embrace the promise of diversity, we face the fear that a live encounter with otherness will challenge or even compel us to change our lives. And he, he goes on to say that otherness um, always invites transformation. And so I took up that, that challenge, um, that invitation for transformation. Um, so I drew upon two Yupik values that I had experienced um, in the region. And those two, you know, that I often witnessed out here. And so my stance became one of careful listening and observing, not reacting, but being careful and listening. I mean, my students, they are fantastic listeners, let me tell you. So um, these two Yupik values kind of guided me as I embraced my fears. And as I observed students, I noticed that they seemed to relax when elders spoke. That is, my own apprehensions were never mirrored by the students. And so I continued reflecting on this. So what it made me do is I had to reflect on my own life, my own experiences or lack of experiences with an elder structure in my society. That was what I was seeing out here. And... I, um, and, and you know, I had, my students would often say like when they walk into a classroom and they see the two elders sitting up there, uh, you know, they feel a relaxation. They feel like they don't have to worry. They're going to lose their cultural identity in a university classroom. They share that, um, it's just truly comforting to them. And then when you think about this holistic classroom, it means we go, we are looking at all these difficult issues that happen in rural communities that everyone's been impacted by. So it is comforting to have your elders there as touchstones. And so I remember, um, and I, I started to, uh, you know, I settled into kind of a feeling of humility. Um, and I realized that in fact, the curriculum was being shared and learned, but sometimes my white eyes couldn't really see that learning. It didn't look like the kind of learning I thought I would see. And so I took more time with elders. I sat with them at breaks. I said, how's it going? Or do you think we should go in another direction? And um, we would have conversation. Uh, and you know that it took me a year. Uh, okay. This is not an overnight. Well, well, for me, I mean, maybe for some of you, you might catch it real quick, but this was me. So I got to April of that first year. We, we get together for the cohort. It's Monday morning. Both the elders, um, had doctor's appointments, so they weren't going to be in, in the morning. Now this is very rare. I mean, elders, as any of my students who are on this podcast right now know, they, they arrive on time, they come back from breaks on time. And any of my students 
remember that. They come back from break sometime. <laughs> anyway, I like to tease about that. So they weren't there. So we, we went through our morning. I wasn't really thinking much. After lunch, and, you know, this is really touching to me, even, you know, no matter how many times I tell this, after lunch, we're all set up in our big horseshoe. I'm at the f- front table. There's their seats to my right. And just as we start to begin, they come in the door and they start walking up to their places. I'm going to tell you, I had a visceral feeling of relief that I did not know I had cultivated. I did not know that over this time, all the reflection, forming my relationships with the elders, I had grown within myself a place for them. I mean, now I'm going to cry. I mean, I feel like, you know, it's just, I'm so, well, talk about grateful. I'm so, so grateful for that. And, and I felt the relief. I felt like, oh, I didn't even know I was missing them all morning and I didn't even know it. I'm so glad they're here. And it's very hard for me to even imagine teaching in a classroom where you wouldn't have them there. And, And of course, as I evolved myself, you know, and did this reflection, it meant that their stories had more room. I had more room for their stories, right? And I could then begin to gain some of that knowledge that they were sharing. And I could understand their culture much better. And I could, um, you know, feel a lot more comfortable and relaxed and really see the elders and me is really partners and, and, and as I refer to them as like part of the instructional team. So like as a non-indigenous woman, I found an authentic but slowly cultivated way of being with elders. And um, so that's, you know, you know, I, I, I have an elder. I have a couple of uh, some elders in town here that I'm close to. One, especially Esther Green, and I remember um, she started inviting me to breakfast, and so we have been having weekend breakfasts at the same roast restaurant here for 15 years. They know us. They already they set the table for us. They already know everything we're going to eat, and um, and so that's been like a really profound experience. Um, Anyway, uh, so having said that, um, I want to shift. So, you know, I, I said in the beginning, like how I'm grateful for the land and the people out here and elders, part of those people and, and the other people are my students. And now that's a, this is another really powerful place of learning for me. Um, so, you know, I mentioned the social issues that happen in the, in the region the ongoing consequences of the colonization uh, process. And the rural human service students, many of them are um, frontline providers of services to members in their community. So they, um, and and so they're impacted directly or indirectly by any number of things that happen in the region as we all are that live out here now. Um, So it's not like, you know, it could happen in a, a village on the Bering Coast. Some something could happen that was very difficult and challenging for the community, but it will ripple out and reach Bethel because you'll know somebody, but just because we live in this context. So 
you know, I was thinking about that and um, how in the RHS classroom, and I'll share a little more about how this happens, but in the RHS classroom, learning and healing happen together. Learning contributes to healing and healing adds to the learning. And this holistic orientation dovetails with the kind of the Yupik people have a culturally in, infused beliefs about the interrelated nature of life and experience. And it makes for a really dynamic um, classroom. Students sift through new information from their own life and they develop skills along the way with reflecting upon the ways their, you know, their own lives have been impacted with the issues or their family or their community or our region. Um, so in RHS, we use talking circles, small support group discussions, journaling as tools to aid students in integrating healing and learning and new skill development. So that's a lot, that's, there's a lot going on in an RHS classroom during that week, right? So, and as an instructor now, <clears throat> in this environment, it took me some time to understand the co-mingling of learning and healing. Uh, my ongoing reflexivity uncovered another aspect of how, as a social worker, how did I perceive what I was seeing in the classroom as students experienced um, this process of engagement that the students had. And the awareness I came to kind of startled me, okay, because I don't know, for some of you, when I went to college and grad school, uh, they weren't holistic learning environments. It was, you know, you get instruction, you take notes, you write papers, you take tests, um, you participate in conversation, uh, but you, but my goodness, if you got very emotional, um, and if a lot of people got emotional, um, you might be referred to a counselor, or you might feel very embarrassed, and you might um, decide, oh, okay, that I don't know why that happened, I'll deal with it, I'll take care of this outside the classroom, next time I'm, I'm in class, I'm not going to get all into it like that and get emotional and everything. So I, I was wondering, okay, what, because in my classroom, there's emotion, okay? And um, periodically, I've had someone from the outside, you know, they'll come to co-instruct or they'll be a guest for the week. And uh, if they're not from a Native community, they will often ask me, hey, are your students okay? Today seemed very... There was a lot going on today. And I said, uh, you know what? Yes, they're fine. <laughs> and someone's going to crack a joke and someone else may cry and someone else may tell a story about their auntie. I said, it's all going on and, um, and everything's fine. Um, but I was also kind of reflect back on my social work education. And, you know, one of the, you know, you could read uh, in your intro to social work book or your cross-cultural counseling book in the social work field. And there'll be chapters on various populations, right? African-American and Asian and um, uh, maybe Latino or Hispanic. Um, but there is, there's never a chapter on white people, like counseling white people. And, and what do you need to keep in mind? And what are some good, some good practices? And how might you be challenged if you're not white and you're counseling someone who's white? Which 
reminded me of a student in one of my Hume's classes, and we were talking about cross-cultural counseling, and I um, and I mentioned this, and I said, so you know, and, and what would and most of my students were indigenous, so I said, well, what would you do if you had a white person sitting in front of you, and that was your client? What might happen with you as a social worker, and you know, what kind of re- reflections might you have to have in order, you know, provide help to them and but one of my students, she said, Diane, that's just never going to happen. I said, why not? And she goes, because white people aren't going to come to me, a Native person, to get help. Um, and, I mean, then that stung. And I thought, oh, okay, and I need to think about this. So I did a lot of reflection on that. And I realized that in those books, you know, the designated helper is white and in some ways, and the designated client are people who are people of color. And so I thought, okay, let me just reflect on that for a minute. Um, because then I had this, I realized I had another bias. And here's the hard question I had to ask myself. When I'm in the classroom and there's a lot going on, um, do I see my students as actually clients, and I'm their counselor. Well, I had to think about that long and hard because I think that um, I think that's the only way I knew to understand what was happening. Well, that wasn't okay with me because that was a misreading of what was happening, and that was a misinterpretation and a. Um, and unearthed within me, yet another bias. Um, <clears throat> and with healing and learning inseparable, could I understand that that dynamic through a culturally respectful framework rather than the duality of client and clinician? And I just felt really challenged by this insight because I knew I could sway in the direction of clinical duality. So... And then this, this would allow me to be kind of a distant clinician and the students are the vulnerable client. And I needed to unpack that and reconceptualize it. There's this anthropologist that I really like, um, Ruth Behar. And she has a book entitled um, The Vulner- Vulnerable Observer, Anthropology That Breaks Your Heart. And she describes the significance of life history and life story merging as a key form of approaching and transforming reality. I thought, wow, okay, I need to read more of that and really like absorb that. So over time, I was unable to maintain this precise duality and distance because I was learning not only about my students, I was learning about myself too. I had vulnerabilities in the classroom that I had to notice and reflect upon. And this organic experience of learning about myself through my students and learning about my students um, and learning about them through me and me through them, it culminated in me realizing that and, and this is a growth thing, kind of the growth thing over time in my reflection with elders, where I then now, if you ask me, I would say that I see my students as my colleagues and my peers, and we're doing something very powerful together in the classroom. And 
that's another thing I'm grateful for <laughs> that I could come to that realization. Um, but my learning didn't end there <laughs> and probably never going to end for the rest of my life, technically. And I love how you people always say like, you're going to be learning forever. Like it never stops. You learn until for the whole entire party part of your life. And that's kind of a relief because you can relax and go, okay, well, you know what? It's a long haul. Going to go for it. So um, here was another. Now, should I keep going, Christian, or do we need to take time for something? Or If you've got more to say, keep going. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll tell that. Yeah, I'll tell this one here. Um, so uh, and this is one that's also like really powerful. Um, like I said, my, lunar, my learning didn't end there because uh, my students have uh, aspirations. And rather than a career path or, you know, a resume builder, they're in RHS as a route toward saving the lives of their people and changing history. Now, let me tell you, when you're a university professor and your students come to your class, go, hey, we're here to save our people and change history. And then you look on your syllabus to, and that's not on your learning outcomes. <laughs> okay. It's understand this, be able to describe that, you know, but change history, save your people. No, I hadn't had that on my, my syllabus. So, okay. So I thought, okay, oh my gosh, am I up for that? Can I, uh, now I'm going to have to step up because can I provide a classroom that lets them have that experience that yes, they are on a path for that kind of transformation and healing and change and um, putting a stop to some of these colonizing consequences. And I was kind of thrown off a bit because, you know, I went to, I went to grad school to be helpful, to help other people, you know, with my social work degree. Uh, but I did not ever have the thought, how can I um, save my people? You know, so I had to, you know, think about that. And I had not heard anyone conceptualize their social work education in terms of survival as a people. Um, so, you know, and that I'm so grateful for my students to have that and to let me, you know, be able to learn from that myself. Um, you know, one of my students told me that when she learns in our, when she's in RHS for the week and she's learning and the healing is happening while she's learning, she really feels like that's also happening to her village right then and there. That's the interconnection. That's the deep relationship. Not individuality, but even in her own learning and healing, she was connecting it to her community. You know, what a beautiful thing, right? And so spiraling back and forth um, from their own and their community's experiences while in community in RHS with other Indigenous learners was not only empowering for students, but for many, um, and maybe some of, if there's any on who went through RHS, they may speak to this, but for many of them, it was life-changing, as well as enabling a more powerful vision for their communities and tribes. Um, the stakes were high, and I often struggled to keep up, move beyond my own syllabus, and allow those high stakes to educate me. And I admired, so this led me to another thing. So I really admired my students 
these, their aspirations, their commitment, their authenticity um, in class, uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So, um, and, and they, and they make a two year commitment and, you know, some students, if the weather's starting to go down in their village, they'll say, can I come in on Saturday instead of Sunday? I want to get there before the weather crashes. Or sometimes they'll, um, golly, I had one student, planes weren't traveling in her community. So she snow machined to the nearby community and caught a plane there to get to class. Oh my goodness. So this big commitment they make, but let me say one more thing about this academic pathway. What happened is there was only RHS, the certificate level in the 90s. Well, then what happened is people wanted more. Students were like, let's keep going. So what we did is we designed an associate degree of human services and we attached it onto this academic pathway such that when they finish RHS, they're also halfway done with an associates in human services. So in a way, they're working on two things. They go on for another two years plus one summer um, part time and they accomplish their associate degree in human services. And then and I think, Christian, you went through all this, too. And some of the people on this podcast listening have been through this. When they finish their associate's degree in human services, now they're halfway done with a bachelor of social work. So then they can go on to that. And the, the associate degree and the bachelor of social work are also cohort model, blended delivery. So they come in for one week intensive for two of their courses, do Zooms, then come back for three days to finish those two courses and they go part-time. Now, any student who enters the university and decides to go part-time for their bachelor's degree, it's going to take almost eight years. Uh, and so it is. This, and we have students doing that now. Every year, we're more BSWs are graduating. There's RHS, associate degree holders, bachelor of social work degree holders, in villages where there never used to be. Um, they're populating a lot of the agencies now. Um, and some of them aren't done. They want to go on for their master of social work. And now we've had students go through this entire academic pathway and then go on and obtain their master of social work. I thought, wow, that's quite a commitment. So what, um, Oh, I just, I, I'm sorry, I just noticed UL's note there where I did, UL, I am so glad you finished that BSW, oh, and you're going for your MS, oh my gosh, okay, well, there you are, that's your, I've just described you and some other people on the call. So I, um, I thought, well, what would be my version of a commitment in this kind of context? And some months prior to me, like really landing on what I decided to do to have my own commit, my version of the commitment, I'd had a conversation with a professor up in Fairbanks who probably did not uh, fully understand this model uh, and probably needed some time to do some more reflection. <laughs> but she began to talk with me, you know, and, and she would say, you know, oh, you know, all that emotion that goes on in RHS. I mean, if you guys are doing a talking circle, how is that related to your course content? I mean, what if you're teaching this and then you're doing that? 
And I, I became overwhelmed because she, she was just, this went on, you know, um, you know, could, could your students compete with one of mine for a job? And I, I mean, I'm, these are literally what was said. And, and this was a woman with a PhD um, in the field, not in social work. She doesn't work for the university anymore. Do not try to identify her. <laughs> and uh, she was in another department. Um, so we went back and forth about this, um, you know, me trying to like defend what, what we were doing and, but I didn't have all the language that I, that I wanted to have. And I was intimidated by her. Um, and so I decided my my commitment would be, okay, then I need to go get a doctorate. I'm just going to have to go get a PhD. And this also kind of chokes me up because I thought, you know what? No one's ever talking about my students like that again, because I will deliver <laughs> the theory if they need it, the articulation, the energy, whatever, uh, you know, I'm going to do it. So that's what I did. So I, you know, took on a PhD and my, what I studied was the teaching, um, adult learning and the teaching of social work to indigenous adults, because I was going to nail it. Okay. And so that was my research. And that took me four years to accomplish that PhD. And, I, you know, and it wasn't, I wouldn't have gone for a PhD, but it was, but it was part of my path in what I was learning, what students were sharing with me, the kind of commitment I saw them making and how, um, you know, I thought, okay, well, maybe there's some work I need to do they're committing and working. Okay. What's, you know, and in our world, that would be a PhD. So that, that's what I did. And so I made, I was kind of on a parallel path with them. Like they're doing their education. I was too. And, um, and we all got to share how we procrastinate on homework. And how do we try to, uh, stay up on our reading and everything? Um, and I was right there with them. So, uh, you know, kind of like to tie it up a little bit and then open it up if people have questions or they want to comment on what they've been hearing, uh, which I'd love to hear from people who are listening, how this lands with all, any of you. Um, so one thing I like to tell my students at the very beginning of RHS, um, and in each of the RHS courses, I acknowledge um, the impact of colonization on even the world of counseling and how do we design counseling and um, how do we maybe redesign it away from sort of a colonized version. And so same with education. So a lot of students, because my students are all adult learners, like in their 20s, but many in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s, when they went to school K through 12, they had to leave a lot of themselves at the door in order to succeed as a Western student in the school system. Now that's a form of trauma and it's a form of educational trauma. And knowing this, what I learned to say over time was that in order for them to do well in this particular university program, they were gonna have to not leave anything at the door. They were gonna have to bring it all in. Their life, their history, their culture, their understanding of the world. Um, and for many that meant their shyness because a lot of my students are shy in the very beginning. Um, and I 
wanted them to really embrace being in a classroom with their whole selves. And I even tell them, like, if you, if you try to be Western ish, <laughs> um, you, you probably aren't going to feel as good in the classroom. You're probably actually, you're probably not going to do as well. Um, because the class, this is a different learning model, um, that's, uh, really geared for the strengths that you have, that you don't have to leave at the door. And, and this is the truth too. Periodically, when I say that on the very first day of RHS, where the students are kind of nervous and some say, well, I didn't know, I didn't know college was going to be like this. I thought we were going to sit in rows and, you know, and, but we're in the big circle and, um, and I say that, I say, okay, you got to bring your whole self in. You don't have to leave anything behind anymore. That education is done. Some of my students will cry. They burst out crying. The relief of that, the acknowledgement of the trauma that education has brought, um, the, the attempt, the hope that we're going to get it right or we're going to do it better so that they can be a full human being and not hurt by education because no one should be, you know, traumatized by that. And so I remember, so kind of as I tie it up and to bring it back to that story from the Philippines, I remember something um, that occasionally happens in RHS that um, reminded me of that story in the Philippines. So there was this class, this one time, so a couple things like one, sometimes students, you know, they'll say, Oh, sometimes I wish it was just a regular college classroom because last time I was in college, you know, in the 1980s or 1990s, I just sat in the back and no one ever looked at me and I never had to do anything. But in this classroom, I have to be here. <laughs> like We laugh about it. Um, but the other thing that's really powerful is, um, and thinking about my story about the Iboloi, our RHS classroom rarely has lengthy lecturing. Okay. So as any of the students on there will know, I, this is a long time for me to talk. Um, I usually at some point bring it back to them, have them teach each other, small group work. We do a lot of really fun things in the classroom. And uh, so one time toward the end of the two years, uh, one of the, a couple of students asked in this one class, Hey, Diane, um, can you go ahead and just do that Western thing? of lecture and we'll just take notes because <laughs> I think they were like tired of participatory. <laughs> they were like, please give us a lecture. And, and I thought, I, I thought you want a lecture. Oh, whip out your notebooks. Cause I will deliver right now. Let's go. But what I liked was in that moment, my Westernness was not a weapon, but it was a tool that they could use and control as they saw fit. And, I'm grateful, super grateful for that because they were using my Westernness in a way that they felt comfortable with. And, uh, and I delivered my lecture. Because <laughs> deep down inside, every professor wants to do a little lecturing. Um, so I'm going to tie this up with a quote from one of our elders. Um, and it kind of speaks to, you know, what I'm really grateful for. And, and it's Esther Green. And uh, 
And she knows I'm doing this today. She's in Anchorage right now. And she knows I'm going to give you guys this quote. And I wish she was sitting like right here next to me. Um, but she's in Anchorage. So, uh, and this is the quote from Esther Green. RHS touches everybody's hearts and teaches each person as a whole, spiritually, mentally, physically, and culturally. It leads a person to explore one's life to start with before becoming a frontline worker. You have to heal first before you can help others. RHS has helped the students as well as me as an elder with reawakening to self, others, our surroundings, and has been an inspiration to everyone. We take what we learn and use it to heal ourselves, families, communities. That's how my people will survive. And that's my beautiful, beautiful quote from Esther Green. Um, oh, look at this. Oh, look at these people that are on here. Oh, my gosh. Diane, before we I, get... I haven't even looked at the comments, so let's, sorry. Let's slow, let's slow down, Diane, before we get to the chat. We'll go to the chat later. Let's okay, stop. Okay. Let's, let's slow down for a minute. Um, okay. So first of all, thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing oh, that. Um, actually, you're... Your talk was so thorough that I was I was writing down questions. You answered them right after, so I just have to cross oh, most of them here. out. Um, well, good. We were in sync then. Yeah, but I wanted to circle back to, to you were talking about curriculum, you know, and you rarely give lectures and, and this and that. And, you know, I think back to when I grew up, I hated school. Like, I hated it. Um, there were a few teachers that I liked here and there that, you know, read and used reading and stuff like that. For the most part, I hated it. I went to college when I was 19, and I hated it, and basically – kind of got laughed out of the classroom. But it was all what you're talking about. Like you show up, you get lectured to for an hour, and then maybe you have an exam or whatever, mm -hmm. all the way from a kid um, to college. And then, um, like, and so just to put it in perspective, like, uh, like the Brazilian educator, Paulo Freire, you know, he called it the banking model of education, right? Like, so if you're my teacher, I come in there, you've got all the information I need it, so you talk and whatever, and you give it to me, and it's a transaction. But that's not what happens in rural human services, like at all. Um, and uh, what I want to talk about specifically is a, is a talking circles just for a minute. You know, it's the exact opposite. If you thought about the lecture, it's a square or a rectangle. The teacher's up front, maybe separated by a desk or a podium or something. And they deliver this information and it's like one way transaction. Um, but when you go to rural human services, the first thing that you do is you sit in a circle. At least that was my experience. Uh -huh. It's been my experience. And um, I remember, so I went into RHS not liking education. I was doing it to, you know, get a degree and move up career-wise. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like RHS at first. Um, I -hmm. sat in this big circle. Uh, UL, UL can testify he was there. And me and him were the only males. And there were like 30, between 30 and 40 of us. And these talking circles took a long time. And um, at that time, you know, looking back, I would, I would say to myself, like, I've got a million other things to do. I'm hungry because uh, sometimes the food actually got brought out because the talking circle was still going. So I was I'm hungry. Uh -huh. I've got homework to do. I've got other things to worry about. And I felt like, you know, people in here whining about all their problems. And I've got problems, too. Um, but the beautiful thing about it is that the talking circles completely were transformative for me and that the longer I participated, the less it was of some other people tell, telling their stories and our stories kind of started to intertwine. And so 
it changed mm. me, it changed the way that I looked at things. And I was so hardened from those days of the banking model of education that I was complete failure at. Um, that Talking Circles and the RHS program transformed me so much that here I am, you know, as a professor in the same program that I, I promise you, I would have never, you know, thought to it, move forward in this way academically um, or professionally without ever being not just um, introduced to the talking circles, but, you know, able to participate with them over the several years in which the RHS program takes place. Oftentimes we have cultural training, um, cultural awareness training, cultural competency, anti-racist training, and it's like a day or two days or something, or even sometimes a meeting. And like, it can't even scratch the surface because we're so complex, multi-layered individuals. I don't care if you're white, indigenous, whoever you are, somewhere in between, um, you know, we're multi-layered individuals with multi-layered complex life experiences, complex ancestry, all these things that inform us and make us who we are. Um, the talking circle is the way. And so I was just wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit more about how you use them in the classroom, what you've seen, and maybe even how they've changed you. Yeah. So that's, I really relate to what you're saying. And, um, and, and I also just side note real quick, that, that idea that you could just go to a workshop and be done with it. That isn't, well, there, in my stories, you could see a work. I didn't, the key was, was I open to reflection and was I open to challenging some implicit and deeply trained things within me, you know, could that loosen up some, but in terms of talking circles, um, I was nervous about talking circles in the beginning because <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and we have this beautiful, um, we use a story knife to, as the object that people hold. And we have a really beautiful one that's carved by an elder, Sam Smith, who used to be, an, he's an RHS graduate and he has been an elder in the program. Well, um, again, you know, I had to challenge myself, like, is it, is this going to be a group thing? And, uh, am I going to need to help people afterwards or is this going to be okay? Um, and it all, you know, it was, of course. So in the way that we do talking circles is sometimes the talking circle will be on the first day in the afternoon uh, before we leave. It kind of like to, to be able for people to bring things out in a talking circle so that they can, um, be able to settle into the learning they want to do for the rest of the week. So it might be, so that might be kind of part of the purpose. Um, it also, I really appreciate with my students, when we do a talking circle, we always make sure that, okay, so let's say somebody gets very upset and they're crying um, and we have tissue there, but you never directly hand the tissue to the person and have them take it. You just kind of, you know, you'll see it. People just nudge the tissue box near the person. And when they're ready, they will reach down and pick it up. And I asked my, I, I asked an elder one time, like, oh, why, why should we do it that way? You know, because my inclination is like put a hand on their back or, you know, give them a hug or hand them a tissue or, and she's, she said, no, don't do any of that because if you hand them the tissue directly, it's like you're telling them they need to settle down and they need to stop and just let them be, let them be, let it go through them. It'll be fine. And that's what I've seen 
you know, over the years, it's been exactly like that. People get upset, uh, but we're in the circle. And all we do is we just are, you know, compassionate listeners, you know, and we care about the person. And one thing I do, you know, let my students, like one thing we talk about is like when you're in your, when we're in the talking circle, we want to use everybody talking as a chance to practice our listening and practice staying in the here, the present moment. So if your mind starts to get distracted, bring it back to who's talking and just practice that exercise that, you know, listening muscle, so to speak. So we do it in that way. We, uh, and then we have some kind of general rules we set up so that, you know, to, to have the circle. Um, but another thing that can happen is if we have content that has been particularly triggering, has um, really been disturbing, that can happen sometimes. So we might, I might make time then at the end of that particular day to have some talking circles. And we'll, we'll probably like break, break them into two or three talking circles. And um, so we might use it kind of as a way to cement some of what they're learning, to acknowledge what they're feeling about what they're learning, to give people a chance to be heard in a loving, caring, compassionate way. Um, and then, you know, like what the elders have told me too, is like when somebody's going through that, everybody's learning with that person. So, you know, going back to, you know, myself before I understood things, um, you know, I would have thought uh, that learning is on hold until the emotion is done. That's what I used to think. Cause I, cause I, you know, you only learn with your head. That's it. Now you big people will say you have to learn your whole body, your whole system learns the information. Um, so, so we give that opportunity for that learning and healing to happen. And a talking circle is a really great way for learning and healing to happen at the same time. And, you know, sometimes uh, an elder will, remind the students that, okay, you, you're going to learn something today or you've learned all this week, but it takes some time for the learning to travel from your brain to your heart and through your whole system. So be patient, give yourself time for that learning to settle in.
stick. It was just like, and he just, now this is the guy, he has his hands on the steering wheel and he turns and he looks up at me out the window. He goes, I never thought of it that way. And I said, well, look, we're all needed. Let's get on it. <laughs> and uh, he kind of chuckled. And so he, he left. And I, you know, I reflected on that a long time over the years because, um, you know, how there's a glass escalator. Um, I mean, a glass elevator. I uh, know a glass ceiling for women going into male dominated fields. Well, I think in social work, there's a glass escalator. And if men go into the field, oh, you'll get you'll be the manager before anyone else. You'll be the director. You're, you know, you're going to get scooped up. So now coming back to RHS and and. So we see reflected out here, the same thing as a female dominated. One of the ways I think of it, and I, I think of this because a couple of weeks, two weeks ago, I was um, teaching interpersonal violence to the RHS cohort up in Fairbanks. And we were really looking at <clears throat> the impact of colonization on men, men's understanding of themselves as men. Uh, what kind of masculinity does colonization promote and so we went through the whole kind of really looked at the detail of the way that colonization dismantled, was destructive to family systems, marriage systems, how men and women understand themselves in the world. And so what we have then is our replica of a system that's not that great anyway um, and puts a lot of you know, pressure on women in the field um, and we aren't, we aren't going to get where we want to go unless there are more men, um, doing this work, learning, um, taking a sense of responsibility for being, doing this kind of work, I guess you could say, um, to not consider it women's work or less than, um, Oh, that's what women study, you know, us men study this kind of thing. Because uh, I think that um, now having said that, <coughs> so I have, I think I have three or four men. Um, well, no, in this current cohort, I have two, two men and they have loved it. They at first had a little trepidation, you know, it's going to be all women and what am I going to do there? But they really, um, it's really been helpful to them as men, helpful to them as fathers, helpful to them as community members. Um, they feel a lot differently about the field. Um, and probably because they're in a, you know, a holistic learning environment where everyone belongs, everyone's in together. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of how I re respond to it. It's just that that's a reflection of the lar larger society um, and then that gets pushed on to tribal communities. And um, yeah, so that, I, I think that's what I would say for now. Thanks, Diane. <laughs> Lee, turn it over to you for a minute. Yeah, so where to start? Um, I guess I just want to start by saying I'm happy that I can relate with a lot of what you guys are talking about. Um, as far as RHS goes, out of high school when I was 18, I worked for Tisha Simmons, who was a uh, adjunct oh. professor up here and the interior uh, RHS program. And so I would accompany her to the Westmark when everyone was in town. And it was interesting because 
I was 18. So I had just graduated high school and I was a student at UAF, um, brand new student at UAF. So for me, very westernized schooling systems. But to come into RHS, I was like, man, what is this? Like I, like just the power you felt in the room, the connection, the emotion. Like there were times I left and I was like, man, I'm exhausted. But it was just so profound. And you know, when I'm years later being able to think back on that, like that's a real genuine heartfelt way of teaching. And so um, I just could only imagine the impact that, you know, those two year cohorts have on a person and, you know, people who are able to go through the program, you know, that I got in two week time periods here and there. So pretty cool stuff. Um, and also I used to run talking circles actually um, as a recovery support group for Alaska natives who were um, in recovery from opiate use disorder. And so when I first kind of took on this um, programming, you know, I was the only non-native person. All of my clients were Alaska native and we too used peer support elders. And so I just want to make sure I was like getting it right. I was like, Lee, don't blow this. Um, but I, I let it come naturally. I think instead of fixating on what not to do, I just let things happen naturally. And so it was a few months in, one of my clients told me one time, she's like, Lee, I've been through the ringer. Like, you know, these clients had complex trauma histories and addiction stories and been through the justice system. And she's like, I've been a part of treatment numerous times. I've been a part of support groups, counseling. She's like, but this talking circle has really meant the most to me. She's like, I've never been a part of a group where I can be myself and not feel judged. Mm, and so for yes. me, I was like, well, gosh, like we're doing the talking circles working basically. And so, um, you know, since then I, I realized that they um, just serve such a strong purpose, you know, for Alaska Native communities, but really for all of us. And then also I just wanted to mention, I'm sure you're familiar with the Alaska Blanket exercise. So I was able to yeah. participate in one of those exercises a couple of years ago. Um, and as things come full circle, full circle, Tisha was our facilitator. Yeah. And um, I was blown away by that experience for one, because I used to work with special needs kids and I would accompany them to um, the Alaska studies class. And so, you know, colonization was touched on, but not as much as it probably should have been. And so, during the Alaska blanket exercise, I like found myself tearing up and I was like, man, why is this impacting me so much? Like, I feel just so like connected to it. I feel bothered by it. I'm grateful though that I'm able to learn about it. So with all that being said, I'm curious, you know, moving forward, whether I facilitate talking circles again or groups for people in recovery, um, how do you introduce the topic of decolonization? Like what is a non-abrasive, like, <laughs> And I know that it probably could be like the most long-winded and like, <laughs> but like, what is it like, from a non-native perspective? Like, what mm -hmm. is a soft way, I guess, that is impactful that you can introduce a topic like that? Yeah. So I start with the beauty of Yupik culture. So I, I usually, I acknowledge like, you know, and it, it's just wonderful to think about. I mean, what, what amazing, you know, people to, Okay, look, before there were boats, uh, motors, and guns, I mean, those guys could go out there and bring a walrus in, a whale. They could bring a whale in from a skin kayak. 
okay, without guns and all that. So you think, and and so we talk about that in class, like well, the amazing scientific, you know, profoundly intelligent uh, survival and resilience. But but not just that; it's just living and being whole people on earth, you know? So, and, and so I just talk about that and, you know, how um, the balance that there was between men and women, that the real respect for everything women did was highly respected. Everything men did highly respected. Um, you know, men and boys tend to live together. Women and the smaller children tend to live in their own units, but all, you know, as a community. And as we're saying that, and then I, and then I usually say um, something like, and then my people came because, <laughs> you know, I got to own it, right? Uh, my people came. And then there's a little chuckle in the class. Maybe there'll be a little nervousness like oh, we've not, oh, what's the white person about to say? And we're not used to talking about it with a white person, you know? So I try to take take that out of the room, you know, like don't even worry because we're all going to grapple with this. Um, hey, colonization isn't really that great for anyone, to be honest, but okay. Um if you turn, if you think of like social, emotional uh, feelings of connectedness for human beings, colonization doesn't really help with that. Um, I said, so my people arrive and here is some of the ways that um, they engaged. Uh, and they had two really important tools, education and religion as two tools to enter into communities and start to try to dismantle, remove, destroy ideas about being, in this case, I'll say Yupik. Um, and I say, but here's the really great thing, because technically uh, with colonization, native, you know, my students aren't, are, are, can still be here, but they are not supposed to be here as Yupik people by now. They're supposed to be here as white people ish in there, you know, so, um, and then I, and then I'll say, but look, colonization didn't win. Awesome. Uh, and just as there's, as we know, all of us probably listening and you all, um, historical trauma, but there's a, exactly historical healing. You know, my colleague like Laverne Dementsoff and another colleague of mine, they kind of frame out that in a really beautiful way. And so, um, it didn't win. You're still here, still Yupik. And here we go. Let's keep going. And so I kind of, um, you know, I'll tell you another story here um, that I thought was interesting. Uh, because, yeah, so I had a colleague, um, a Dr. Michael Yellowbird came and co-taught with me. And he's a member of a couple of tribes in North North Dakota. He's a social work scholar. Um, he's at the University of Manitoba now. He's the dean of the social work department there. But when he came up to co-teach with me for one week, he was at he was director of social work at Humboldt State. And so we go through the week. It was very powerful for him. I mean, he 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 just really he liked it a lot. He wanted he came back again two years later and taught again. So at the end of it, um, I said, oh, you know, Mike, Michael and I were talking. I said, oh, you know, I maybe I should go um, and do your job with the white students in the MSW program at Humboldt. And then you come up here and you you do the you be the professor for the students. And um, 
And he just chuckled and he goes, no, my white students need to hear from me. And I said, oh yeah. And he goes, and your students need to hear from you and you need to provide them the opportunity to deconstruct whiteness and to not feel threatened and feel that they can talk back to a white person and with ideas and all that. And I said, wow. I said, well, I never thought of it quite like that. And he goes, no, that's where it is. You know, that's he's, that's how he saw it here, like in the historical context of, um, because I went through a phase when all this whiteness was going on with me, am I thinking about it? <coughs> and excuse me, I'm sorry to cough in there. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to diminish myself in the classroom. I'm going to like tamp it down. Don't want to be the leader because I don't want to be oppressive white person. <laughs> okay, I went through, I yes, I went through that kind of phase too. Um, I'm telling you, there's not a phase I didn't go through and probably have yet to go through. So anyway, I'm, I'm diminishing myself now. Then my student evaluations, I started getting this. Uh boy, this week, Diane really hung back. Why did, why is she doing that? Um, or another one, like, how come she's not being the leader in the classroom like she should be? And I, I thought, um, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> what does that mean? So of course, best thing to do, go consult with your elders. So I sat with a couple elders and I said, <sighs> I said, oh, I'm trying not to be, I'm the only white person in the room and I don't want to have disproportionate time and all that. So they're laughing at this by now um, because I've been working out here, you know, I've been out here like, gosh, probably 15 years or so. And, um, and I'm, this was probably like my four, I'm on my, I'm starting my ninth cohort in the fall, but this was probably around my fifth cohort. And, uh, one of them said, gave me another really good lesson. She said, well, Diane, it's, it, it's not. It, it, what it is, is, is um, in the Yupik culture, when someone has the role of teacher, well, you, you need to be that role. So really, it's not about you. It's not about you being white. It's that you have a role in the classroom and you're not doing it. You need to step up, manage things like you're supposed to, like you have been, like the way we love for you to do. <laughs> you don't have to hang back and do that. And so... Um, now, I don't know if that would have been said my first cohort. Maybe I did need to kind of adjust myself. But in this this time and place and context and the conversation I had um, kind of helped me kind of, you know, redevelop my understanding of me as a white person, a white teacher in the classroom. Was that how? Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. I don't remember. <laughs> I hope they caught it. So, and, yeah. We're, and we're, well, one thing, one thing I was going to say, because Christian, you might know this um, from your experience of it as a non-Native man. Um, in the very beginning, I was thinking, well, this is a good education model for Indigenous people. And now I think it would be good for everyone. And what I like about that is the understanding that Indigenous uh, societies have values and understandings of the world that need to be protected, honored, and respected, and are needed by the world. And so it's not just a, oh, well, that's good for them. Well, no, I actually, I think a classroom like this is good for uh, a lot of people who would probably 
find, you know, something really worthwhile and meaningful for them in it. So I just wanted to mention that too. Yeah. And I would say that I have evidence of that. That's what I'm trying to do. There, think, yes, there you go. Awesome. You're spot on, Diane. But in the essence of time, I want to make sure there's a lot of people here, and I know that some of them have questions. And so if you would like to, there's a couple of ways for you that are tuning in. If you want to ask a question, you can either queue up into the caller section and we'll take your calls like a radio station, or you can also put it in the chat, which we'll get to in just a minute. And um, so while I'm waiting for calls, callers to queue up, I just wanted to read what some of our audience members said they were thankful for. Um, Shannon said, I'm thankful that I was given a heart that I can share with others. I'm thankful for all the wonderful people in my life that have taught me many things. I'm thankful for my dogs, my home, my truck that lets me travel to amazing places. I'm thankful for our universe who gives me hope to live as myself every day. Alicia said, I'm thankful for joining this awesome community every Saturday. I'm also grateful for this beautiful sunny day, hearing the ocean waves and being with my family. Robin said, I'm thankful for the support of my family and community in my education. Brad said, I'm thankful to be alive and to be in a better place than, than my po past. Anne said, she's thankful for this opportunity and my home, my food, and my circle by the way we had to make last-minute accounts. Um, Heather is thankful for this time to have this, to have the time to be present in this space. Doreen's thankful for the sunshine today, as well as the opportunity to learn and grow. Deb's thankful for her family who support and enrich her. Thankful for the ability to do her work in the community she lives in. Thankful for breathing fresh air and having abundant water, enough to eat, and a warm, cozy house, and on and on. Grace is thankful for today. Thankful for this moment to be a part of the podcast with all of you. Grateful for Diane, mm -hmm. for my warm home, for healing from my grief. Um, thankful for my family and my first grandbaby. I have so much to be thankful for. This list just scratches the surface. Kiana, I think this is Alexis. I'm thankful for this podcast, for the hosts, as well as the guests. I'm thankful for the sunshine and the education I'm able to receive and thankful for my friends, his family, as well as my cat, Tim. So thank you, everyone. And I don't see anybody in the caller queue. What's going on, everyone? Any questions? Hey. Nothing. We were bombarded before. Nobody <laughs> question for Diane. <laughs> it's all right. The uh, other ones took a minute to come through. So um, yeah. let me ask you this, Diane, while we're waiting. You mentioned earlier a little bit about authenticity and authentic, you know, an authentic way of being. Um, and I don't think you mentioned this on this podcast, but you mentioned it to us the other day, I think. Um, was this idea of, you know, at one time you thought maybe, I don't say you thought this, but that somebody told you at some point that you didn't need to be Yupik, that you could just be yourself in that, in that environment, if that makes sense. And I was just wondering if you could talk about how you were able to, because it's a hard thing to come through moving to a new place and, you know, it's a process. So I was just wondering if you could talk about how you came to that authentic way of being and, and what that means for you. Um, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's something that takes um, a lot of reflection, willingness to be honest with myself, um, you know, being humble, and then also, you know, being willing to question 
some of the foundations that maybe I was taught about myself and my place in the world. Um, when I went to live in a village out here and I knew, and um, what I did was to, to kind of, I, I hung back a little bit when I lived in the village and I would, in the very beginning of living there, I would um, do things so that people could see me and just kind of watch me and get a feel for me without me having to, you know, crash into them in some way or um, I don't know how to explain. It's like I would walk down the the road, go to the local store, get a snack and just let people kind of have a chance to get used to me. Um, and I think I, I thought about that because I didn't want to, you know, perform in some way like, oh, I'm the school social worker. So, um, I wanted to remove all of that and just be a human being in the moment, let people have space to watch and look at me and see how I interact with people and sort of put myself, um, put myself out there like that, just as me and not my title and, and the services I was supposed to do. And I think that worked out well. And like when I went on to become uh, and, and among other things, when I went on to become uh, the lead social worker for the school district, I um, would say to a new social worker, okay, at least for the first six months, it's okay if you don't have any clients. You don't have to, you know, if, if you get a referral, yes, you know, see that child or that family, but you don't have to look for that. Uh, let that, um, but hang out, you know, if you see staff having coffee, hang out and have coffee with them. Like just be a regular person with them. And for some people that was awkward because, you know, they were relying on their identity and their title to guide what they did. But instead I was trying, I wanted them to just be themselves first and foremost, and then evolve more into the title of social worker that they had. And, you know, going, I'm also reminded of something too, that when I lived in this community and we began to, I began to work in the community with their social service department and they had an equal worker and a, they had a grant for a substance abuse counselor in the village and we would all kind of gather together and it took us a while to kind of feel our way. But here's another story about, you know, Hey, Diane, just be Diane. Okay. You don't have to be like you pick Diane. Um, it took us a while, but we started having these weekly meetings on Tuesdays and we wanted to form like a multidisciplinary team. And the eventual goal was for them to provide the social work services. And I would not, I, I'd be gone by then. We had a five-year plan. And so, uh, so we're meeting. And at one of our meetings, I said, okay, I have this thing called uh, like a master's in social work. So I'd like you to design it however way you want. Like, what is it you'd like me to do? in these meetings, um, what role would you like me to have? And they'd say, well, you know how Western people like to document everything? <laughs> I said, yeah, well, why don't you be our note taker? I said, oh, okay, I can do that, yeah. And because you're not from here, you can bring, would you bring a hard topic up and then you just sit back, we'll talk about it. I said, oh, okay, meaning to say, uh, I think of it like the hitchhiker phenomenon. Like if you like, well, back when I hitchhiked, which I don't do anymore, um, 
people would tell you their whole life story because you didn't belong to them. You didn't belong in their world. And so they would tell you all these things and then drop you off. So in the village, I might bring up a hard topic like the impact of domestic violence on children. And I teach on teach them just that. And then that would be it because, and then they would discuss it among themselves because if they initiated the topic, you know, and maybe it was happening in their life or maybe they uh, had a family member involved, you know, so it, it was awkward. So they had a really elegant way of having us talk about hard things and using my outsiderness as a tool to help that happen. So one time I'm up at the call, I'm up at the uh, school. We, we meet at one, it's about 10 after one. I'm getting my stuff together to like hustle on down there. And I get a uh, school secretary calls me. Oh, Diane, they're calling you. I get on the phone and I forget who it was. And he's like, uh, Diane, we're here. What are you doing? I said, Oh, well, I, I'm getting ready. I'm going to come down. I said, I said, can't I, can I have Yupik time just this once? And he said, well, no, cause you're not Yupik. Get down here. I said, oh, okay. So I get down there and then that was, oh my God, the joking for that. Uh, you know, uh, you Western people. Now we know that you have your sign of respect is to be on time. That's not our sign, but that's yours. So you gotta you gotta live with that. I said, "Oh my gosh, you know, you're so right." Okay, I'll be on time every time. And uh, so we had a lot of fun actually in in that because I was the first school social worker that ever called and asked to meet with them. Everything was always separate, and so in the beginning they said they didn't know what to do with me. They didn't, you know, I'd show up and they didn't quite know how to handle it. So. I, uh, anyway, we evolved ourselves into a really good working group, um, over time. There were about probably eight or nine of us actually that met pretty frequently. So. All right. We have some, um, yeah, I have some question here. Um, Margaret wants to know about the MSW program. Is that still in the works that I think she's talking about the cohort, I would assume. Yeah. So the MSW, uh, well, because there were, uh, a couple of us, um, Richenda, my colleague of in the social work department, Richenda, um, George Bettisworth, you know, we have this dream. We want to have an MSW and attach it to our academic pathway. And, but we haven't, we have a link to the pro, there's an indigenous, uh, at the University of Manitoba in Canada, they have a MS, a regular MSW, and then they also have an MSW. IK, Indigenous Knowledge. And so Indigenous Knowledge is infused throughout that particular pathway. Well, we want that pathway. So in the, still in the dream state, Margaret. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we're, we're hopeful for it. All right. Robin says, RHS sounds like an amazing program, and I think they're extremely lucky to have Diane. I'm inspired by the model in which there were stories. There were more stories and information about the program and how it benefits individuals and communities. It seems like a little known program that could be a model for delivering other subjects to rural and indigenous students. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, I saw there was a question about um, indigenous, uh, yeah, Laverne is asking about um, highlights about what is happening with indigenous pedagogy at UAF. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this really quick. Uh, some years ago, uh, three years ago, 
uh, vice president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation came out to Bethel to see the UAA nursing program, which is housed here. And he had a small entourage. And someone said, oh, you know, you should talk to Diane about that RHS program just for interest's sake, you know, because he was actually there for the nursing program. Well, um, so I so we had breakfast with myself, two elders, two two RHS students. We shared our perspective of the program from each of our positionalities, so to speak. The end of it, he turns to me and he says, oh, you know what? You should be sharing this with other faculty. And I said, oh, sure. Okay. I'm very busy. I'm out here in Bethel. And he said, and uh, he left, he wrote me an email. He said, uh, what would you do with $50,000? Because I think when you're a executive of a philanthropy organization like that, you have your own like little kitty that you can kind of distribute. Um, I said, I said, I, I wrote, wrote back and I said, I do a three day indigenous indigenizing pedagogy for UAF faculty who have never thought about doing this. And he wrote back and he said, okay, I'll transfer the money to the philanthropy unit um, at your university and go for it. Now, I don't know if any of you on there, people don't usually just ask you for money. Okay. They, you've got to write a grant and you got to be very specific and you got to prevent the budget. I was like, nah, well then COVID happened. They let me carry it over because I insisted that it be in person, that it not be Zoom, <laughs> because we didn't want uh, that just your basic training. So I called upon like the best colleagues like Laverne and Rachenda and Jackie Tagaban and Robin Henry, uh, Sally Sampson, Kendall. And we got together and said, okay. Let's do this. And so we designed a three-day workshop. Uh, Christian was there. Maybe, I don't know if any listeners were there. And we had a track um, so that Indigenous faculty could spend time together with a facilitator and non-Indigenous faculty spent time together with facilitators. And then we all came together. And then we uploaded a lot of materials into Canvas. We had two exceptional guest speakers in the fall after the August workshop. Um, First Alaskans uh, gave a great two-hour presentation, and then Dr. Michael Yellowbird gave another presentation. We had drop-in session for people because we asked people to take one course and, in, and take from the workshop and practice. Infuse it where you can. Try some things out. Let us know how it goes. And so... Um, we have applied for to do this for three more years. Um, so we're going to see if we get some university funding. And I think probably the thing is it does need to sort of grow and develop and, and, and become not just a one and done or not just like a training you go to off a master list, because I think it, it has to be reflexive and ongoing and ways that you relate, you, you, ongoing connection with other faculty doing this. And so we need now to move toward getting the university to embrace this. And the way I like to think of it is like UAF is a tier one research institute. Well, and so a lot of promotion of research, indigenizing research, and that's awesome. And I want teaching to also be there, kind of the art of teaching 
and have it be infused with that same sense of mission, of importance, relevancy. Um, and, and that's kind of what I hope starts to happen down the road. So that's my answer to that one. Right on. Thank you for sharing that, Diane. And thanks for putting that together as well. Um, yeah, we're out of time, Diane. So I want to thank you very humbly for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and having you on the show. It was awesome. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. And everyone who listened in and um, all your comments and uh, just really beautiful. So I'm so glad to be able to share. Yeah. And if, if anybody's listening, like I said earlier, if you have a story to tell and you are interested in being on a guest, then please contact us. You can, one way you can reach me is by my email, castetler at alaska.edu. And that wraps up the episode. Lee, you have any last words? Uh, you know, just real quick, I'm humbled to be a part of this conversation. Uh, it really makes me reflect on my experiences, you know, with talking circles and kind of the work that I've done, you know, with indigenous communities. And real quick, I want to make a comment. Uh, you said earlier that like your whiteness didn't matter. I don't remember the context, but I was trying to think of a time when like my whiteness didn't matter. And my peer support elders, Alan Lonnie, I have grown to be extremely close with them, love everything about them. And Al is blind. And I remember we left an event one time. It was the out of the darkness walk for suicide prevention. And I walked into the car. I opened the door, got him in and handed him his coffee. And he looked my way and he told me he loved me. And I couldn't like I was like just stunned. I felt so good in that moment. I was like, I can't believe Al just told me he loved me. But sadly, too, I thought I was like, damn, I, I wonder if he knows I'm white. And it's sad that that was my thought, but that's kind of where I went oh. in that moment when I think mm -hmm. back on it. But really, mm -hmm. like now I know like my whiteness didn't matter. And like we really kind of are one and, you know, maybe love is blind. <laughs> but um, yeah, thanks for our listeners oh, for tuning yeah. in and for you, Diane, for helping us bring cohesiveness with two different worlds. And, and if it makes you feel any better, I would be a front of the line hiker in the Philippines, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, you can find episodes right here on the call-in app. This episode will be available later this afternoon. And you can also find this podcast via Apple and Spotify after they are recorded, the audio versions. And so we're broadcasting here every Saturday live at 10 a.m. Next Saturday, we have actually my wife, Alicia, um, and she'll be here to talk to us. She's a clinical therapist here in Juneau, and she's going to talk to us about some of that stuff. Uh, but what she really wants to focus on is something, the program she's been working on, she calls revolutionary yoga, where she uses yoga to help with therapy. And I'm not going to try to explain that because she's the expert. So I'll let her talk about that. But please, please tune in next week uh, for that. I want to thank Diane again. Thanks, the audience, for tuning in. And uh, all right, folks, until next week, peace. Thank you. The Critical Social Worker is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. This episode was hosted by Christian Stetler and Lee Smith.
This has been a Conscious Party production. You've been listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my story, our story.